Okay, after my last uh, podcast, you know, the Hellboy slash Devil Man, you can say segments. Um, I mentioned something during those segments, and I was talking about my time as a youth worker working with kids, and you know my experience, you know, in working with children, and. I'm not, well, my education isn't in, you know, working with children, but in my personal life, I've had existential, you know, you can say experience in working with children. I spent my whole life taking care of children. More importantly, in regards to children, I've spent my whole life being surrounded by women. And not like in the sense that like I'm popular among ladies, but in regards to children, I've spent time, you know, with the women that are connected with those children, their mothers, their aunties, their sisters, you know, things of that nature. And just because I was taking care of children, I would converse with these women and I would learn from them. And and also, you know, I have a small background in psychology. I didn't graduate, so I have no degrees, but I am an in- internal student, you know, so I continue to learn. I've never stopped studying. I've never stopped learning. You know, I'm always, you know, just looking into like what's current, what's the current mind state of the populace, of the, you know, average individual, how are we treating psychology, how is psychology treating us, what is the uh, institution doing, you know. There's an industry of psychology, what's the, what's going on there, you know. I'm trying to stay current in those things. So, I'm not even going to say that I felt the need, but I think it's an interesting topic of just like my experience in working with children. So, if, I, if I'm talking about that, you know, my son's the youngest of his generation of children, you know, for all my siblings and cousins in my generation that had kids. He's the newest baby. But in regards to me talking about children, i got to start with my son. And before I start with my son, I have to talk about spirituality. Why? Uh, as a kid, I was not a religious or a spiritual person. Like, the first school I went to was a Christian school, Mount Calvary Christian Academy. Uh, spent my first three years of school there, and we're counting kindergarten so really it's like four years kindergarten first grade second grade third grade christian school like they had nuns they would hit you with rulers the whole nine the entire time i'm hearing all this rhetoric hitting the word of god you know reading the bible to you we had bible studies reading all these bible stories i didn't believe a word like and i was a smart kid you know and we're learning school things at the same time so it gets to the you know fast forward i'm 10 my mom's making us go to church every Sunday. And, you know, the pastor's preaching. It, it didn't make sense to me. Like, I heard these Bible stories, and it didn't sound real. You know, and me growing up, at that age, I wanted to be a writer. I was writing my own stories already. You know, I've been drawn since I was three. And I was never a kid at any time who believed and make believe. You know, I didn't ever really believe Santa Claus was real 
or the Easter Bunny. Like, we played those games, but I had my doubts, you know, I had my suspicions, and obviously, you know where that went. So, I was never one of those kids, even at the earliest age, like, oh, I wanted to be a Power Ranger, and then, like, no, I knew the difference between reality and fantasy. And as religion was presented to me as a child, it seemed fantasy. It seemed like one of the storybooks I read. It seemed like the story of Hercules. It seemed like, you know, the mythological tales coming from the Egyptians. You know, it, it had this air of fantasy to it. it. It didn't seem grounded in reality, you know, and I knew the difference. I lived life. I had a rough life. I grew up in the hood, you know, so there was a stark reality that wasn't reflected in these stories, in these biblical tales, and the interpretation of these tales from adults. Um, fast forward again, I'm 16. Let's just say I had a spiritual experience. I'm not going to get into what it was. You know, if I get like requested to get deep into that, I can get deep into that. But I had this experience and immediately I went back and read the Bible over and over and over. And then I became spiritual slash religious. And I say religious because I subscribed to that religion, to Christianity. But as I went on, it wasn't enough just to subscribe to a religion to believe, you know, the stories of that religion, the interpretations or the word of God, quote unquote. I needed to know what was real because I had this experience and this experience was like, dare I say, experiencing God. So in my mind, it's like, whoa, this is real. So I went back to the literature that was given to me as a kid and I said, okay, I need to reread this. I have a, you know, I have a new, you know, state of mind, a new perception that I need to apply to these readings, to these writings that maybe help me myself better interpret what I was reading. And to be honest, a lot of it wrong true. There was a lot of knowledge in the Bible that I didn't get the first time around in my youth. You know, when I was a younger kid. Now I'm a teenager, I'm 16, I'm reading these stories. And it's like, okay, now the stories themselves, they didn't seem literally true. But the Bible did a decent job in, you know, cataloging human behaviors. You know, I've seen a lot of human behaviors you know, displayed in the Bible that were still happening at the time, you know, and it's like, it's the same thing. It's like humanity is the same as, you know, as it was back then. Nothing really changed, and it's like the Bible was laying out these behaviors and why these behaviors happened a little bit, and then God's consequences or rewards for certain behaviors, you know. But as I, I continued to study, it was like there were holes in that knowledge, you know. And I found myself reading the Quran, and the Quran, I think, did an even better job because it did it didn't mess around too much with 
stories or giving these like fantastic examples. It was just like a straight rule book. It was like these are the rules. This is what you do and don't do and why you don't do it. And it covered everything from marriage to sex to friendships to properties. It was just like straight law. It's basically like it's really a law book, you know. And I'm talking like if you're trying to be a lawyer, it, you know. And then, but it still wasn't enough. Like there was something missing, you know. Because sometimes the laws didn't make sense. It's like that don't make sense. It don't make sense in our reality today and what's real today and the way we live today. It didn't make sense. It seemed foolish. It seemed like you would harm yourself more with certain laws. But just the same, these laws were strictly enforced and you receive punishment from God if you deviate so like why would God institute a law that would endanger me in my life and then punish me it, it just didn't make sense so I'm already a little bit into psychology so when I went to college in 2005 so I'm older I'm like 25 going to college you know I skipped college. I dropped out of high school. I didn't go to college. Got my GED in 2003. Went to college in 2005. There's some things that led to that, but we're not going to get into that. Like I said, questions requested. We can get into that, but not now. I go to college. I'm studying psychology. My father was a psychologist. I had given up on drawing at this time, and I said, if I'm not going to draw, I'm following my dad's footsteps. And so that's what led me to psychology, you know. So my, well, I spent three years in college. I didn't finish out the fourth year, and I sure didn't go into graduate school. But psychology and art was the focus of my studies. And really, doing art in college, like, made me a better artist and got me back into art. And that's why I dropped out. Like, no, I'm going to be an artist again. Whatever. So... Instead of psychology, I saw this same, you know, this idea of like presenting human nature and giving explanations for our nature, for why people behave this way, why they think this way, why they act this way, what's going on into that, and like basically what's the psychology of that. And I found that even though there are still holes, the clearest, most definite answers came from science. It came from man. It didn't come from these spiritual texts that I read. It didn't come from the Bible. It didn't come from the Quran. It didn't come from elders who I knew were completely religious, completely spiritual, and they have their own insights and interpretations of these books. It didn't come from them. It came from the objective observations of psycho scientists, psychologists, you know. And it got me really thinking about religion and I kind of studied back on religion again and just discovered more holes. So at this point, I was like flipped. And it wasn't really a flip as life was going on between me going to college and between, you know, when I was 16 and I really dived in as I went forward. 
my spirituality, my religiousness started to erode. Like life picked that apart, you know. And as I tried to have a relationship with, you know, God, whatever that may be, as I perceived I had developed a relationship, that also eroded as to almost like a non-existent thing to the point where I started to feel a little crazy a little bit. And then I went to school and found this science and it just cleared everything up for me. So it was like, brought me really full circle back to where I started, like this can't be real. You know, in a desperate moment where I needed that, religion was there. But then as I have grown and become stronger and I come back, circle back to what actually is, I see that it fails again. So at this point, I'm full atheist. So where's the story go? My son. Full atheist. Uh, me and my wife, we moved to Seattle. We struggled hard for like the first two weeks. Like we're living in a hotel. Uh, we don't know if we're gonna get our place. They're acting janky with the place. It's supposed to be ready, nothing's ready. She's pregnant. So we're in desperate mode. I said, fuck it, wife, let's pray. We prayed. In the moment of praying, like I'm an atheist, but at the same time, like, look, I'ma suspend all that and I'ma just say my best prayer. You know, we said our prayers and then we got what we prayed for. Now on the other hand, you might look at it and say, Well, we're just sitting around in the game. No, we went out, we hustled, we worked, we were out every day, all day, in the dead of winter, me and my pregnant wife going around Seattle trying to hustle up what we needed to get into this apartment searching for apartments, uh, getting whatever assistance we can, you know, aid and stuff like that, knocking on people's doors, making sure she had her health insurance, you know, so she could go to the doctor. We were going to the doctor at the time so they could see the baby while we're staying in a hotel. And we got the place. So you could say the place just came around because of the work we did. Or you could say God had a hand in that. You know, who's I'm not going to say. But, and then the birth of my son, when my son was born, like, I can't even say I'm religious or even spiritual right now. But the birth of my son, just the whole situation, you know, that came up up until he was born and just seeing him there, it just made me feel like there has to be something more. Not that I wanted to be or not that I believe in something more. It's like, this just came out, I don't want to say too perfect, but it just felt too right. And maybe it's just love. Maybe... God is love. I don't know, but that's and to give like complete context, like before I met my wife, I like really never had any real successful women. You know, I had my little flings and things of that nature, but it was never like this. I never, I didn't believe in marriage. I never expected to get married. And I was really intent on not having children. Mainly because I spent my whole life with children. And really personally, to be completely honest, I never considered myself a child person. Like I never really liked kids. But I have so much experience in taking care of kids. And I have a general respect a humanistic respect for children and I have an enemy to care for kids like 
you know. You know, that's just my natural inclination. Let's not get into that either. But now I'm in Seattle. We survived the situation. My son is born. I'm married. And it's like we got married, then we had our kid. It wasn't like we got married because we had it's just everything just seemed to fall into place so well. It just felt like maybe not like something greater was making it happen, but that being a part of this made me a part of something greater. I felt that that energy, that feeling, that love was like there's something about the universe that not even science is telling us. You know, and maybe these are all pieces to the puzzle. Religion is just a piece and science is a piece and part of our job as human beings is to like piece these things together. Like what connects these things, you know? There are connections between psychology and religion. Religion was the first book, you know, the Bible, the Quran, these were the first books of psychology, of an explanation for human behavior and being, you know. So, you wouldn't have one without the other. So, you know, in regards to children, when I was in college, that's the same time I started working at the youth center. Like I said, I had no prior, besides, you know, me and my personal life, like, helping to raise all these other children, I had no professional experience in this sort of thing. What got me working there was, I'm at school so much, I'm drawing so much, I'm back in the art, I'm writing these books. Like, I'm not spending a lot of time with my siblings. You know, my sisters were still in school, my brothers were grown, they would visit me, we would party, drink, whatever. But, you know, my sisters were in, kind of getting in trouble a little bit. You know, being inner city kids that migrated to Duluth, they were in the same boat. So, I ended up really going down to the center. And when I was younger, when I, I came to visit my auntie in Duluth, and I spent time at the same center. So, there were a couple people who were working there that knew me from my time as a kid. So, they allowed me to come in there. They made me fill out, like, volunteer forms and stuff just so I could be there. And I would just go down there and hang with my sisters, you know. And some of my little cousins were down there, so I would just hang with them, you know. And I would help out. And so I get, basically, and also I started doing work study from school. I needed some extra money. I did work study from school, and they let me do it at the center. So that really put me in. So I'm basically working there now. They're not paying for it. So after a year of doing that, you know, the what do you call it, the department head or the manager or whatever. It's a special, you know, term or, you know, title she had. But cool woman, Stephanie. You know, she's just amazing at her job. She's amazing at getting money to keep this place running, you know. She approached me and she was just like, you've been here for a year doing amazing work. We want to hire you. So the place where I work was a subsidiary of another place that was like a juvenile detention center, you know, but it was made like, it was like a camp. They had housing quarters and they had food quarters and they had sports quarters and it was in an area that was heavily wooded, you know, just basically woods everywhere. So kids had nowhere to run. They would let you run and call the cops, the cops would catch you. It wasn't.
and then working there, I got involved in the community. You know, community work, nonprofit work. I mean, the center was technically a nonprofit, and I got to see, you know, a glimpse into that world. Now, that's another conversation. Don't get me started on the nonprofit industry. And yes, it's an industry. How can it be an industry when it's nonprofit? Hmm, curious idea. But let's stay on topic. So, you know, I needed something to do. I wasn't just watching kids or playing with kids. What do I do? So, you had to do activities, come up with activities. What did I do? I started a poetry group. I uh, fancied myself a, a rapper. Actually, rapping and performing on stage really got me out of my shell psychologically when it comes to like social situations. That's another story. I got a lot of stories to tell everybody. But like I said, stay on topic. And a poetry group came to the center. And then, you know, I did rap. I was encouraged by my brother to go up there and spit one of my raps, one of my more friendly, kid-safe situations, you know. And I had just written something in that vein. It was talking about real life and struggle, but it wasn't a lot of cursing and things of that nature. So I went up and said it, and someone approached me like, you should coach kids with poetry. And I never did poetry before. I was kind of a fan. I don't know who the major poets are. I couldn't tell you anything about poet history, but I know about writing. I know about writing stories. I know about narration. I know about writing rhymes, you know, putting these schemes together. So I did it. And then learning and doing that and then coaching these kids, it like opened up a whole new horizon for me. So now I do consider myself a poet. I am a poet. I think I'm a very accomplished poet. I perform various places for various sized crowds. I did crowds as big as like 3,000. Not to say I'm big or famous. I was invited to do a venue and that was a size crowd. That crowd wasn't there for me in particular. So I'm not trying to portray myself. But at the same time, no matter the size of the crowd, you have to go up there. You have to own the crowd. You have to engage with the crowd and get them into what you're doing, you know. So I was able to do that with the crowd of 3,000 people. I said I had that ability to go up there and make my movement across the stage and look down into the crowd, you know, and just establish that connection with the crowd to, like I say, own the stage and own the crowd. So that's another story and things of that nature. So... I'm not going to get into that. But, you know, for the sense of these inner city kids coming to Duluth, Minnesota, like, they would get into fights, they would argue and, you know, get into it with kids. And it was just like poetry in motion that I was studying psychology, not child psychology, but psychology in general. But I was in a situation where I can apply what I learned. And then dealing with these kids, it was kind of explained to a lot of children, like, helping them understand, like, understand why you're, you know, you, why you're using violence, why you're being violent verbally, you know, why you're so quick to jump into defense mode or action just for the slightest whatever, because you came from that environment. You come from Chicago, you come from Detroit, you come from these huge cities where if you don't jump to action, you're a victim. And literally, even as a child, you're a middle school kid, you can still lose your life. You don't know how to defend yourself verbally and physically. But it's like now you're in this town, and it's not just a small, quiet town where you don't have to do that no more. Like, the town has a deep history of racism. 
and you got these black kids coming in behaving like they do when they come from the inner city and it's like you know the town itself will target you you get targeted at school labeled a bad kid they find ways to kick you out you know you get targeted by the police you know they follow you around they'll quickly get you a record I've met kids with assault records and they're under 16 like you're 12 you're 13 you have an assault record what happened you got into a fight at school they charged you with assault which is ridiculous like kids fight I got into countless fights as a kid no one was charged with assault but whatever I don't run that town anyway you know so we're just understanding that 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 that, that dynamic of adjusting to a new environment adapting to a new environment you know having that state of mind or giving them that state of mind fast forward again I'm out of college I dropped out I went to California for a year had to find myself you know I come back I published my graphic novel what else do I want to do I still want to do poetry I kind of still want to work in the community not necessarily with kids, but just be a part of the community, be active in the community. And poetry was always my gateway for that. So I found one of my students, Quentin Lake. Big ups to Quentin Lake. He's a great poet, amazing dude. Um, he was hanging out with another kid that used to hang out at our poetry sessions. He did some poetry, and I took him under my wing. We formed a group, Suicide Minds. And I used my old connections to get invited to social, cultural, community events. They're like, yeah, we want to do poetry. And they're like, wow, we haven't had poetry for years, it seems like. Come on in. So, so quickly, we became the poets of town. Like We were getting invited to everything. And we were doing stuff. And we were doing, purposefully, we were doing socially, culturally questionable material. Like the white kid I was working with, his name's Mark. Shout out to Mark. He did a poem called Recipe for a Slave where he used cooking analogies as like, I would have a recipe, I'm gonna cook up this dish. He's like, this is how you cook up a slave. And he had a lot of, he did it in a very hyper happy sort of way, Rachel Ray, Rachel Ray sort of way. And he used a lot of like pop culture references and puns and stuff. And like it was the most one of the most amazing pieces I've ever heard. And it rubbed people of color the wrong way. But for good reason, you know. He wrote it and every time he did it, people approached us like it's amazing, but uh, I don't like to hear it, but you need to hear it. It's the truth, you know. That's some real that's like one of the most truthful pieces I've ever heard, you know. It's systematic. They have a recipe for how they do this. It's not just a natural occurring phenomenon, you know what I'm saying? Just oppression is design, you know, and it's implemented through design. But one thing I noticed in my rounds around town is a lot of the kids I work with at the center, they're a little older now, they would approach me and they all still respected me and looked up to me. And I didn't even know the impact I had on these kids' lives, how they would, a lot of them really, 360, their lives and school and their personal life, 
because of their interaction with me, not saying that I'm responsible, I'm not. You know, I'm not even gonna say I opened the door, I'm a catalyst, I'm just a guy trying to make it, and I did what I thought was right at the time. Cause they had to do the work, I wasn't living their life. They had to make decisions. You know, they had to open their mind, they did that, I didn't do that for them. I just shared what I was learning, you know, that's all I did, I shared. And they took it and they did whatever they needed to do with it, but then they thanked me for the part that I played, and I accepted that thing. And I thank them for giving me the opportunity to have the experience for myself because it, it, it changed me as well. You know, so I started thinking, like, my childhood, my past, you know, our parents and every parent around us was on drugs. Like, they weren't parents. I mean, they took care of us. They fed us. They gave us a home, but they weren't parents. They weren't concerned with our growth, our health, our well-being. They, they might as well had not been there. You know, you got an entire generation of people, my generation of people that grew up like that. So we learned to be super independent and take care of ourselves. An entire gener generation of black kids who grew up to be independent. Now we're parents and we have this mentality of super independence. We take care of ourselves. We take care of our immediate family and stuff like that. And it's a lot of new generation kids that's going through the same cycle of no parents. You know, no one there to really care for them or watch them. And then you see the reactions. You see it more so back in Chicago, where I'm from. When people talk about violence in Chicago, I say Lord of the Flies. And I don't care if these individuals are in their 20s, mid-20s. It's a situation of kids who grew up without parentage. No rites of passage, no guidance, no protection from the world. And they run to the gangs for protection. You know, they leave their families. And they run to the streets for protection. And you might agree with me, you might not. In the history of black history in America, death of the civil rights movement, the rise of the Black Panthers, the fall of the Black Panthers, the Black Panthers becoming the archetypes and setting the stage for the organization of a lot of gangs. What did the Black Panther create gangs? No, they taught people how to organize in groups and get what you want. And a lot of gangs took those same practices and they twisted it and perverted it. And they, and that's how they started their, their gangs. That's why I see a lot of these gangs coming up through the 80s, you know. The Black Panthers, they ended in the 70s. That's my recollection. I don't know exactly when. But, you know, the 70s, they were big in the 70s and it went down. By the 80s, they were gone. And then there was a power vacuum in the streets. The Black Panthers held a lot of power in the streets. You know, just the idea of them held sway and power in the streets nationally. So when they fell nationally, it created in the psyche of people a power vacuum. And a lot of gangs were built off that, you know, to fill that void. You know, to fill that space of street power, you know. And then imagine my generation coming up under that, coming up behind that. Your parents ain't shit. You need protection in the world. The gangs were there. So at, in some sense, I understand not the need. I don't want to say the need or the necessity, but maybe it was a need. Like, 
gang culture played an important part in our communities. We needed someone and no one was there. They were there, you know. And you can't knock that, you know. Like, you a gangster, but you buy me clothes, you feed me. I would be dead otherwise, you know. And you might treat me well. You might not. There were a lot of people who got slaved out, who got thrown into the criminal system because they had to get stripes or do work for somebody older. And he would feed them the story, I can't go back. I got strikes. But you can go. You young. It's your first time. They won't slam you. What? Do something stupid. You get slammed. They're just setting people up. They were slaving out kids. You know. But what else were these kids supposed to do? That's what they had. You know. So I understand. So now you got this new generation of kids who have taken over the gangs. All these old heads are gone. And it's Lord of the Flies. Like some of the heads of these gangs are so young they're in their 20s you know because they die so young they don't really know what they're doing you know they're still in the mentality mind state of the adolescent they haven't grown up or advanced past that because they're in a situation where they attain so much power they dive what in their mind straight to manhood because they were never given a childhood to begin with you know, so I think about that situation, how it translates, because kids are coming up to Duluth, and how it translates all around the country. It's a, you know, national phenomenon, and it's like, we need to step up. This generation who survived that and came out the other end, and I'm able to have a son and a wife, and I shouldn't even be alive. I almost died plenty of times. I can't even count. Those are other stories. And I'm here now, and I'm chasing my dreams, you know. I work a regular, you know, low job, you know, slave wages, you know, working poor. But I can provide for my family, you know. And I'm chasing my dreams for betterment, and it's better than being in the streets. But we can do better for those kids, and we have to be some type of, we have to become elders. Because I've noticed in Duluth, as I made my rounds and I interacted with these kids and people under me and people my age, like, I had already become an elder at the age of 30. And when you think of elders, you think of grandmas, grandpas, people who have been here for like 20 years, you know. In a couple years, I became an elder because they rely on me. And, and that's what it is. So that's my message. That's the point. What I learned with not just randomly working with kids, but in relation, uh, in relation, especially to the black community, the community I represent, the community I'm a part of, that I care about. My generation, it is our time, and I've seen dudes, you know, my age or close to my age, and. They're struggling like me. They're independent like me. They're trying to maintain. But I see how younger men, younger women engage with them. With that little sparkle in the eye like, I look up to you. But you don't want to be that person they look up to. You don't want to be responsible for them. You don't have to fully be responsible for them. But you can at least be a voice, you know, in their ear. You don't have to just ignore them 
I don't know, we have to be the new elders. We have to demonstrate a level of commitment to each other, commitment to the youth, to the kids. You know, that's what I learned. We have to care about the generational wealth. And I don't mean generational wealth is money passed on. I mean generational wealth is knowledge passed on, as college, I mean, as culture passed on. You know, we got to think about what the life has taught us. We got to come to conclusions about not just what we learned, but how we're going to twist and use it. What, you know, how do we play the game now? And how do we come together and make new rules for the game that's being played? Because it's forever changing. It's changing way faster than we are. You know, so we got to create new rules. And then we have to systematically teach those rules to the younger people who are following the old model that we were born into. And the new model is like, 20 years ahead of the old model but they're stuck in this old model and life is just making them suffer for it you know they might be allowed some luxuries some drugs, some women, some devices some cars but their quality of life their mentality, their psychology is in is being damaged I know they're suffering and that's why so much violence in Chicago because you have a city, when I say children, I don't mean they're young kids. A lot of these people are in their 20s, they're 18, they're 19, they're 20. But when I say children, I mean people who were essentially like discarded, ignored, and abandoned by those who are supposed to you know, be their parents, be their guardians, be their elders. It's like left them out on their own, one by one, piece by piece. And so you have a city of children just suffering in adult bodies. And what do you do? Supply them with guns. Not just saying, who, what do you do? Who is who? Who is you? The government? I don't know where the weaponry is coming from. Maybe that's a job for the police finding out who's supplying weaponry to the inner cities. But they have an abundance of weaponry. They have an abundance of drugs, of alcohol. And it's just doing, you know, kindling into the fire. It's like you just have this recipe for disaster, you know. Just like the recipe for the slave, the recipe for a disaster. You know, you have the recipe for the slave mind that's being instilled and promoted to this day, the slave mentality, and then they're unshackled and you give them weapons. And I don't want to say you give them because who is you? Like I said, I don't know who you is. I didn't do my investigations on that. I'm just seeing, you know, observing these phenomena, you know, in the world, in the streets, you know, and what's the, how do you dial that back? Do you dial it back? How's it transformed? But I know we're all responsible. You have to be, because you have children, you're trying to safeguard your family. You'll never be able to keep them safe. You have to engage the world. We have to engage the world. We have to engage these children, you know, and the world that's attacking them. And yet, if you know, you commit a crime or you hurt somebody else, you got to pay for it. But it's, it's not what you do, it's how you do it, you know. Not just locking people up, but make sure that they're learning from their crimes, that they are being rehabilitated. And that they can re-enter society. They shouldn't be creating more criminals in the prison system. That's another whole different situation. So, those are my thoughts. There's more to go, but we're going to end here.